0: You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. That song so much reminds me of um, Jesus telling the parable of the man who built his house upon the sand and built his house upon the rock. The moral of the story is um, the house built on a firm foundation stands. The story of the moral is that the storm hits both houses. So feeling shaken is not um, the absence of God. It's the presence of life. Not falling is the presence of God. So last week I introduced this new series called Second Chances, What God Did, God Still Does. Um, in that reference, the painting that was done at Easter of uh, a depiction of what, some people say, well, that's exactly what Jesus looks like. Um, we just have never seen Jesus, so I'm not quite sure we can say that, right? But it looks like who we think he looks like based on what other stuff we've seen Is it looks like. Right? That, that what Jesus did for us on the cross was the grace initiator. It was the grace provider. Um, it's what makes second chances. Say so a second chance is not just a do over. We get a chance to do something and again. This is a second chance at life. This is, we, we, we get another opportunity to, to live because Christ is who provides us that ability. And without Christ, there is, there is no life. I, I, know, I know both sides of this fence. I know what it feels like to, to before Christ and think there's a life, and you're living the life, and you're going after the life. What I find, though, is once you get the brass ring, um, it's just not as shiny as you thought it was going to be. And so that search keeps, makes you kind of search, well, well there must be more to, to life. And so there becomes a new brass ring you create, and a new brass ring you create. and Ultimately, you end up discovering that, It's not the brass ring. And then hopefully we discover the grace of Christ, and then we get to experience really what life is. Last week on this introduction of grace, here were some of my big ideas. One is that God's grace is uniquely both confrontational and covering at the same time. That grace has to confront you before it can cover you. That grace has to force your hand before you can grab its hand. And I I introduced that to you because there's two reactions that I've seen um, when when you experience the confrontational side of grace. One is to receive it and one is to recoil from it. And I said that the the confrontational sides of grace, there were being called out, being caught, and being challenged. That those are actually um, bad things. Those are the beginning seeds of grace because they draw your attention to where you are and where, where, what God has for you. So um, when and I did that, so when you, when you get confronted with grace, that you would have a response that's going to bring life to you and you receive that grace, then it propels you forward. You recoil from that grace and it pushes you backward. I also introduced that grace uh, carries two connected meanings. Um, English, our words are are very flat, if you will. They're very one-dimensional. Um, Hebrew words, Greek words, are, are they're much broader. They're much deeper, much more nuanced. So, so grace carries both forgiveness and power at the same time. These, these are not even necessarily two sides of grace. They, they become a, a, a united portion of grace. And today's message, I want to lean into those two connected meanings. Meanings. And I want to look at four emotional displacements or displaces that we find ourselves in. We can find ourselves in these before Christ and after Christ, unfortunately, but I'm calling them displaces. You might recognize them, disillusionment, disappointment, dissatisfaction, and discouragement. Does, Does God offer, is it possible that God can offer second chances to those disses? You bet your life he does. And there's a particular portion of scripture of a particular man that I'm going to illustrate this with, and his name is Matthew. So Matthew 9.9, 9, I'll read it out of the Amplified, because the Amplified will break out some nuanced words. So it says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, or Levi, sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now, here's, here's the, the depth of that follow me. As my disciple, accept me as your master and teacher and walking the same path of life that I walk. And Matthew got up and followed him. So, Matthew is the writer of this book, and this is, he only references himself twice in his whole gospel. One is in the list of the disciples and in this portion right here where he responds to this follow me call. The follow me call was a call to become a disciple. Um, now in the, in the Jewish educational system, there was, there were several layers of school and, um, and every, every boy, sorry ladies, first century, don't throw anything at me. Um, uh, every boy was then sent to school. And the primary purpose one was to learn Jewish, the Jewish history and Jewish heritage. Now it wasn't as if the ladies didn't get this, but they got this from home, but the boys went to former school. The first, uh, and they, they, they went to former school because the, the hopes of becoming a disciple, which would have been a, a follower of a particular rabbi, okay? And then ultimately, if, if, if they were like the brightest of the bright, then the ultimate goal was to be a rabbi, right? So it'd be kind of like the NCAA commercial that says 90, 98% of our athletes go pro in something other than sports. Um, it would be 98% of Jewish boys go pro in something other than Judaism is really what... Yeah, it was it was funnier when I when I practiced it. <laughs> the first level of school was called Bet Sefer, and it was for ages six to ten. It was called um, House of the Book. So in these four years, the students would memorize the Torah by heart. So this would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's hard enough just to read some of those, like like Leviticus, right? But but. But from 6 to 10, the goal was for these boys to have this thing memorized. Uh, another, another way to define Torah was um, the way. Okay? And so, so the, the kids that were able to have this memorized, they would advance to the next level of schooling for the next four years. If they didn't, they were just encouraged to kind of stay home, learn the family business and the like. All right? So the next level was called the Bet Talmud. It was the house of learning. And this was for the kids ages 10 through 14. Now this, they really had to up the ante here, because now at the end of this four years, they would have learned the other um, 35 books of the Old Testament. So now they have 39 books of the Old Testament that they know, and then they know inside and out. And they would also learn um, something around uh, what was called the oral tradition. Um, so these would, the oral tradition, it would have been the rabbi's discussion and, and breaking up out, out of, of the scriptures. And they would learn the, the, the highest levels of the oral tradition around the Torah. Okay? So by now, we can see there's less kids ready to move on. All right? And so more kids would have been encouraged to go learn the family business. And the next level of training was called the Bet Narash. This would have been more like an internship. Where where the, the students would have um they would have kind of asked uh, various rabbis if they could follow them and it would be this distinct interview process because what the rabbi was looking for was not just this, was this was this boy. Um, uh, learned and uh, sharp, but could he actually end up following him? Could, could he understand the nuances that that rabbi understood? Could he teach like that rabbi taught? I mean, it was a very, very, very specific thing because the rabbi then, if he thought you had what it took to be like him, in fact, one way to describe the word disciple was that you followed your rabbi so closely that you would wear the dust of your rabbi, okay? Okay. And so it was a very, a very narrow process here. But if the rabbi thought you had it, he would simply say, follow me. Follow me. All right. So let's get back to Matthew. It's always fascinated me that here is a businessman Who has? uh, He's probably early in his business career. Who knows? But he's he's a businessman. He has sunk his life into becoming this tax collector, and with one "follow me," he leaves everything and gets up and follows Jesus. It doesn't say that he marketed his business to sell. He didn't say he sold his website or his phone number or his or his branding. He didn't sell his book of business. It says he got up and followed him, which tells you that, that the follow me was not just a simple, it wasn't just a simple ask. It, it was a weighty ask. There was something to this. Um, why is Matthew not a rabbi? Well, Matthew quotes the Old Testament 99 times, which illustrates that he had a great understanding of the Old Testament. Not just the Torah, the whole Old Testament, because he quotes it in a manner that's not just like he's trying to do a research project and he has to go footnote something. He ends up quoting as if it just comes naturally out of him in conversation. It's actually three times. He, Matthew quotes the Old Testament three times more than the other gospel writers combined. So to me, it's obvious that Matthew does not flunk out of rabbi school. Now, this is just conjecture. I would say an educated guess. It, it, it seems to make sense to me that Matthew probably ends up being rejected, dismissed by a rabbi. That, that he, put in, he puts in all the effort and all the years and all the training only to be told, yeah, you just don't, you just don't measure up. And why, why would I say that? Because Matthew doesn't choose an ordinary profession. He chooses a profession that was antithetical to a Jewish person. He would have been seen in one case, and, I, and for those who have been around me a long time, I've described, I've described this nuance before, but in one case, he would have been a traitor. He would have politically aligned himself with Rome. Rome, as they expanded, obviously, they needed more money and more money, and part of Rome's need, want, desire for expansion was control and money and power and and they were doing that here. And so in order for me to be employed to collect taxes from you, my peer, I would have been considered a political traitor. But also a religious infidel. Because my, my choice then separates me just not from you socially or politically. It's going, to socia- uh, um, it's going to separate me from you religiously. Because now I would be no longer be invited into the temple. So you think about how many relationships Matthew had to break with this choice. He had broken from his family. He would have broken from kids he'd grown up with, rode, bike, rode bikes with around the block. He would have broken a relationship with a lot of people. So it tells me that this wasn't just a simple choice of Matthew. Matthew, he had to be disillusioned, disappointed, dissatisfied, discouraged for him to choose this, this other antithetical way of life. And I think it's reasonable. That when Jesus says, follow me, the words that he at one time in his life just would have done anything to hear, when he hears them, here comes this bright shining light on his choice and the life he wanted and the life he now had. And with that one simple invitation, he doesn't have to think. He gets up and he follows him. Matthew had to have become disillusioned with Judaism, with the whole rabbi process, but with that one invitation, things change. When when we use dis as a prefix, in all cases, it means there's this gap between reality and my dream. So disillusionment, discouragement, disappointment, dissatisfaction, all the disses, are located in the gap between what I wanted and expected and what my reality is. Okay? And the wider the gap between my expectation and dream and my reality, that measures the degree of, of, of the pain involved. All right? And so so his is his is pretty wide. This is an emotionally strong uh, uh, prefix. Um, it, it's stronger than an un. An un means the absence of something, right? Um, but this is a negative. It's a negative. So, so it's not just zero, it's on the other side of zero, all right? So here's what disillusioned, my definition anyway. Disillusioned isn't the absence of perspective. It's the loss of hope. Disappointed isn't a neutral emotion. It's a negative emotion dissatisfied is more than empty. It also is angry. Discouraged is more than the absence of courage. It's a crushed soul. Now I know we've thrown these terms around in a much lighter fashion, but when you get down to the core, these these are what these emotions are. And you have to do something about dispositions because they don't stay put. They end up piling on. Like making those snowmen. The more you roll that small snowball, the bigger it becomes. I wish things were different, can easily turn into, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore, can easily turn into, I'm empty. And if empty isn't addressed, it turns into, I'm angry. And I said, discouragement is a negative emotion. And if you stay discouraged too long, the negativity becomes your lens on everything someone could give you a brand new shiny car and it won't be the right color right it just it just continues to snowball discouragement is a move from i'm angry with where i am to i'm angry with who i am how did i get myself into this place moves to nothing is ever going to change do you see if you don't if you don't put a stop to these negative emotions how they continue to get greater so I'm painting a pretty grim picture, I know. But I'm trying to give you the context of, uh, from which someone can abruptly get up and change their life when a new life is offered. And I, and I want to make this clear, that following Jesus isn't a choice between two different lifestyles. Choosing Jesus is to, is to choose between life and death. And you go, oh, you're being dramatic. I wish I were. I wish I were. In, in Western Christianity, too often, even, even those of us who follow Christ, we treat it like we just chose a different lifestyle. I just choose not to do this. I just choose to do this. I don't choose to do that. I choose this. And we really do, unfortunately, me included. Treat it like I just chose a different alternative lifestyle. And this is why we get, so we get very comfortable when people choose other kinds of lifestyles. But when you do a deep inventory, you realize I didn't choose a different lifestyle, I chose life. Because this life is not all there is. There's a life after this life. And what do I do with that? I can stick my head in the sand about it, I can say I don't believe it. I, I, it was like three weeks ago I, I preached a message I talked about the difference between perception and reality. My perception never changes reality. So Matthew, even Matthew here is not choosing between two lifestyles. Matthew is choosing between life and death. And when Jesus says, follow me, he shines his bright light. Matthew says, what have I done? No one probably around Matthew saw that he was disillusioned and disappointed and dissatisfied and discouraged. I bet Matthew was really good at keeping up a good face. The question I have for you today is, are you dying on the inside and nobody knows? Jesus is the only one who can adequately do prefix surgery. Where he can take a dis and turn it into a re. Here are some of the re's he does for us. The first is, well, if I said it right, resurrections. All right. Now you're warming up to me. I appreciate that. <laughs> resurrections. Jesus rose from the dead. He raises us from the dead. I think about the phrases that I've, I've acquired over the years around resurrections. Um, one is dead things don't stay dead long around Jesus. Resurrections are the best thing Jesus does. See, see when you find yourself in a place where you, you feel like you're on so far on the bottom that you're not even on the bottom anymore, like you got to reach up to hit bottom... Jesus does resurrections. How, how does he take, how does he take this, this kid, this kid who gets passed over at such a level that he gave everything he had and he still gets passed over and he turns completely away from a, a, a life uh, of, of relationship with Yahweh through the temple and he goes to a tax collector. How do you take that kid and make him one of the 12 original disciples? <laughs> you and I sit here today, literally, We sit here today on the shoulders of Matthew. So there there isn't a different, there isn't a bigger reclamation project that we can read about hardly. Dead things don't stay dead long around Jesus. Jesus, some of the best things, one of the best things he does is resurrections. And you might not feel like that there's any possible way for you to be resurrected. And I would just point you to Matthew and say, I don't think you have exceeded Matthew's fall. Reconciliation. All of our disissues are a result of being relationally separated um, from God by our sin. And when we are separated from the originator of life, guess who turns into the originator of life? We do. Follow me. When we separate ourselves from the originator of life, then we become the originator of our life. That means our life is going to be reg- reg- regulated to my creativity, my resources, my ability, my intellect, my hustle. It's everything's about me, okay? And so then the only thing I can produce is what I can produce. When you separate yourself or when you're separated, when you haven't dealt with the issue of being separated by God from our sin, our originator of life, we are left to be the ones who originate life. Ah, but because he does reconciliation, he forgives us of our sin when we ask for forgiveness of our sin. He puts us back into connection with the originary life. And the originary life can make our life more and better than we ever dreamed of here. That's what John 10.10 10 says. And it gives us a life in the future that we can't even imagine. Like, like it's not even possible for us to put thoughts together that would even come close to resembling what life will be with God after this life is over. He does resurrections, he does resu- reconciliations, and he does redemption. redemption. This is a big one. Redemption um, just, just, just literally would mean buyback, a buyback, right? Um, but that seems to just get you back to zero. R- redemption doesn't just buy you back from something. It, it buys you back for someone. So it doesn't just get us back to zero. When we're redeemed, we get put back in the original place we are with Christ. It Really, and honestly, guys, we become more human when we have Christ. Why? Because, because we, were, we, were, we were created in his image, but then sin breaks that. And so now we're no longer, we've been, we've been broken, right? So we're broken. So to get back to the image of God, to get back to the human he created, comes through the cross to be redeemed. So he takes our disses, he replaces them with reeds, he replaces them with resurrections and reconciliations and redemptions. And if you're dying on the inside today, Jesus is walking right up to your tax booth, and he's saying two simple words, follow me, follow me. That's the forgiveness side of grace. Now let's talk about the power side of grace. I would love to say that we are done with being disillusioned, dissatisfied, disappointed, and discouraged once you come to Christ. Unfortunately, what I said at the very beginning, that the storms beat on both houses, yeah, we still have to deal with those disses and whatever other disses you want to they in infinitum. So how does the power side of grace address when a follower of Christ still hits these disses? Well, he throws in some more re's, okay? So, grace empowers a refocus for our disillusionment. When I find when I get disillusioned, it comes, and, and you're probably the same way, it comes at the hands of two things. A circumstance can disillusion me. Yeah, something didn't turn out the way I expected, All right. But, but at a, at a level which, which brings not just a disappointment, I'm disillusioned. The other people. People can disillusion you, right? So, so, so how, do, how does refocus, how does, how does God bring a refocus to that? Listen to 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard pressed on every side, but not crushed It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit. So that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. And then whenever you see a therefore... You need to look what it's there for. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. It's some of the most frustrating language in Scripture. When Paul will go to this extent talking about being knocked down but not crushed and beat up and not, but, and then to call them light and momentary troubles. Why does he say they're light and momentary? Because they're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Paul already has this vision that this life will not compare to that life. And what we gain, what we gain in the next life, no matter what this one throws at us, They're light and they're momentary compared to what's in front of us. So he tells us what to do. Here's our refocus. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen. When you're disillusioned, if you stay in disillusionment, you stay focused on the thing that disillusioned you. Paul's saying, no, refocus. Fix your eyes on what is not seen. What we know and believe is coming. Because what we see is temporary, but, but I, I can't even wrap my brain around infinity. I like the symbol, though. It's kind of cool. Don't get trapped into thinking this life is all there is and what you're experiencing will never end. That's on the circumstance side. Here's Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. talks about another side. Therefore, since we are surrounded... By such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We fix our eyes on what is not seen, and we fix our eyes on Jesus. There is our refocus for our disillusionment. Fix is a very strong term. It, it, it's not glance. Right? That, that's the best way to describe what fix is, is what it's not. It's not a glance. It's not a cut my eyes at. It's not a once over. It's to attach. But grace also empowers a reappointment for our disappointment. A reappointment. Second Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Your current position is not your current, or your current position is your current ambassadorship. When, when we get disappointed um, and we find ourselves sitting in that disappointment, if you can understand that there is a a bigger purpose that you're being called to, then you're not gonna stay disappointed long. You you can acknowledge that this didn't turn out the way you thought, but if if you don't sit in that moment, if you don't sit, well, what is my purpose in this moment? If we don't change what we're purposed to, if we don't get this other appointment, that the appointment that you thought you were in is bigger than the the appointment that you're in, you didn't think was as big as the appointment God's given you. Because we carry this ministry of reconciliation. This is supposed to be carried around with us. That we're making, we're making the argument. Do you, does that, if you're a follower of Christ in here today, has that ever clicked in with you? That our life, our words, how we interact with people, we are, we are building a case. We are making an argument for the life of Christ. And I can get not being happy or excited or being disappointed or where you find yourself right now, but if I can find myself there and realize I have an appointment right there. There's an appointment right here. Then that reappointment should change our disappointment. Listen, if you're too busy fighting your place, you won't be able to find your purpose while you're there. Now I thought through when I wrote that. I thought through it. And listen, I'm not falling back on this line that you hear so many people say, God has a purpose for everything. I have a love-hate relationship with that phrase. Um, I prefer this way. I'm, I'm telling you that God doesn't waste anything and he has a purpose for you. I have a hard time reconciling, well, God has a purpose for that. Well, he, he might. I don't know if he does or doesn't in all this. What I know is he doesn't waste anything and he has a purpose for you. Reappointment instead of disappointment. Here's the next one. Grace empowers a realignment for our dissatisfaction, a realignment for our dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction with your current position is like a continual vibration in your life. When you find yourself in a, in a place of dissatisfaction, it's like this continual vibration. Now, why is that important? So we had an upstairs air unit uh, replaced in our house 18 months ago. It, it's still painful thinking about it. Um, you know, just the sheer cost of that stuff, right? But um, a week ago, it goes out. So upstairs, even though it wasn't really, really hot here, upstairs, 80 degrees. Now, Gene and I's bedroom's downstairs. Annie's is upstairs. So I, I wasn't as motivated you know, to get it, to get it fixed. Um, but when the, when the tech came out, what, what, here's what he said. Because I'm like, I'm already defensive. It's 18 months, dude. Don't give me a bill, right? I mean, I'm already, I'm already defensive. Well, what had happened was, in, in order to, to put this, this, uh, these, this wiring harness in, in the unit, They had to tuck it really, really tight against a thing of that unit that constantly vibrates. So what happened over 18 months is it vibrated through the harness, it vibrated through the protective part of the wire, and then it shorted out. So so basically, then he's replacing this, and you know, several hours later, he's done, no cost, thank you. But it provides what a great illustration here, because when you're dissatisfied with something in life, there is a continual vibration in your life. Nothing's ever settled. And if you live in that vibration too long, it's going to rub through your protective coating. And it runs through that protective coating, and then you're going to short out. And God help the person near you (laughs) when you short out. So because we live in life that does vibrate, then we have to shift this idea of what we're doing and who we're doing it for and why we're doing it so we don't stay dissatisfied Scripture says that whatever our hand finds to do, we do it to the glory of God. I do it for him. It's his weight. I want to draw attention to him. So what better way to draw attention to God than if I'm in a situation that's vibrating and I realize I got to stay put here because what I'm doing here is I want, I want to reflect God here. Whatever my hand finds to do, I do it to the glory of God. He has a he has a purpose. I can't understand all of what these are, but he has either a purpose for this position or who I'm around, but I'm going to realign how I think that. Realign who you work for. I understand that people watching in this room today, there are some of you who don't like what you do for a living. And each day you get up and go to work, you get more agitated and more vibrated, but can I help you change that? You don't work for your boss or your employer or your company. And if you own all of that, then you don't even work for yourself. We all work for God. It happens to be you and I have the very same purpose in life, but we've been given two distinct arenas to do it. This one's mine. This is my arena. It's not your arena. And your arena isn't my arena. But all the arenas, don't, they don't change in their value. The value of what I do is not more important than what you do. The people I get to be around are not more important than the people you get to be around. Where we align is who we work for. And so when I get up and come to work here, it should be no different than when you get up and you go to work there. I'm working for the same person for the same goal. And that realignment. When I did my mom's funeral, the owner of the company what, that she worked for, mom kept working. She worked through um, she worked through chemotherapy and everything else. She had a goal. She had to get my dad to the age uh, of 62 so that there would be Medicare for health insurance. So she kept working so the family would have health insurance. Mom would go to chemotherapy. Dad would drive her to a chemotherapy appointment, pick her up, and she'd go and work. My mom was a tough. She was tough as nails. But I stood up in that that church, that funeral, and I said, you think she did that because she loved your company? She did that because to the day she died, she knew everything she put her hand to, she did to the glory of God. It's a great inheritance that I got from my mom. It's what changes all that constant vibration in your life of dissatisfaction when you realize you have been realigned. Here's the last one. Grace empowers relationships for your discouragements. I cheated on that one. It's not really a prefix. Satan loves to isolate. Isolation keeps us from helping others and helping ourselves and allowing others to help us. This is gonna sound strange coming from your pastor. A few things discourage me more than people, but nothing encourages me more than people. You're probably in the same boat. The word encourage means to build courage in. It's a great word. Grace empowers you to encourage, to recourage others. And it's God grace that sends others to recourage you. Can't tell you how many times God sent somebody to me to recourage me. And it doesn't happen when we live life in isolation. Listen to a few passages here. Romans 11. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. So those of you who say, Pastor, I hear you say, we, when, we get, when we gather together, we have the opportunity to borrow someone's faith and lend somebody our faith. You know, where did that come from? Romans one eleven. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is, that you and I may mutually in, be encouraged by each other's faith. Hebrews 3.13, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceptfulness, deceitfulness. Hebrews 10.23-25, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We're not just redeemed from something. We're redeemed to be placed somewhere in someone's life, and that begins with the body of Christ. So I ask, do you need the forgiving side of grace today? And this one is, do you need the power side of grace this morning? Have you already been through the forgiving side of grace and you've landed yourself now on the other side of the cross? and you're really still struggling with disillusionment, or you find yourself in a position of disillusionment, dissatisfaction, disappointment, and discouragement, because Jesus still steps up and says the same thing to you and I today, follow me. Let me conclude with this. Last week I said that you, you have an, your understanding of the depth of grace can be um, illustrated by how you give grace. So the the less you understand of the grace that you've been given, the the more you withhold grace from other people. And when you understand the depth of the grace given to you, the more you give grace to other people. Um, So that's kind of the forgiveness side of grace. And Matthew illustrates here this life-giving side of grace because of what Matthew does after Jesus says, come follow me. See, uh, Matthew could have easily said, I'm out. Wow. Thanks, Jesus. What's next? Where do we go from here? You know, I want, I want to forget everything. This stuff has been such a bad memory that I'm just going to go this way. Uh, this is what Matthew does. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn, more, learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What I love is Matthew's guest list looked a whole lot like him. and As a matter of fact, they were him. And by him throwing this party, he's reflecting the reputation of a redeeming God. He's saying, you know me. You know me better than anybody. You know what I was like. I'm different now. And you might not be able to see all of the difference yet, but I can introduce you to the person that's making me different. It's an amazing demonstration of grace. And I'll tell you that whether you're, and I'd have to guess if you're watching online, if you're here today and you haven't, you haven't confessed and um, had your life turned around by Christ. Um, you're close, or why are you here? I mean, why are you watching? There's a, there's a curiousness about this, which means that to me, somebody in your life at some point in time showed you that there was another way. And for those of us on the other side of the cross, listen, the, the farther you get away from the other side of the cross, generally the less influence we end up having with people around us for Christ some of that is because we we tighten our circle to such a degree that we don't even have anybody inside our circle that doesn't know Jesus. And I understand that. I understand, especially as our culture continues to continues to change, I can understand why we would feel safer by limiting the circle of people that disagree with you or um, disagree to disdain you. Um, But that's not our call. So Lord, draw our circles bigger. Lord, help me embrace the circle I'm in. Instead of being dissatisfied with your circle, how about being a realigned to the people God's put in your circle? That, that's grace too. So you might need the forgiveness side of grace. You, you might need the power side of grace in the circumstance you find yourself in now. What we all need is this grace to widen widen our circle, to engage the people in our circle. What Matthew hears when he hears follow me changed his whole life because basically before he believed, I don't measure up, I'm not enough. And when Jesus said, follow me, Jesus said, you're enough. You're enough. Some of you need to hear that today. You're enough. Because Jesus says you're enough. He didn't look deep into Matthew's life and believed he had so much potential. That's not what this means. He didn't make Matthew a better version of himself. What he said is, I'm offering my life to you. When I say follow me, I'm offering my life to you. I've given it to you. You haven't earned it, you don't deserve it, you don't have the potential for it. But when you receive me, you're enough. When you start following me, I'll make you enough. You might need that today. We're gonna sing here in a moment, I'm gonna ask you to stand. And it was interesting, I had this conversation with the staff Um, pre-COVID. We had a lot of movement around response time. If you're a guest with us the first time, there's communion packs on the back table. We have had to adjust how we do communion, but we still do communion. So the invitation around the movement was, you can, you can go back and you can get communion and come back to your seat and take it. You can come to the altar and pray. You can stand where you are in worship. You can kneel at your seat. And the reason why I'm describing this again is because movement matters, because this is, a, um, this is not an inspirational talk today. Um, there's a difference between um, a motivational speech and a sermon. Um, I'm really not trying to motivate you. Um, what I'm trying to do is, in my, the best of my ability, to, to kind of unveil by the power of the Holy Spirit, unveil some things that you might not be able to, been able to see before. And then the best way, the best way that we engage that is by moving, right? Jesus didn't say, hey, stay still. I'll come back and see you every week. I mean, there was movement involved. He said, follow me. Matthew had a choice. He could have stayed put or he could have moved. And I just find that movement matters so much in my life that I, I don't just try to, this is more than an intellectual acknowledgement of what the pastor said today, that you've taken some good notes and you've picked up a few good tidbits and you're gonna mix a few adjustments. That's fine, but there's more to it. And I wanna, I wanna, I wanna see you more engaged when it's time to engage. I know it's, you know, you listen to this monologue for 30 some minutes. I I get it. There's, There's inherent limitations to everything. Now's the time to move. Stand. Father, in one verse of scripture, you open our eyes To this amazing transformation of Matthew from someone that was crushed by being dismissed as not enough. And you step into his world and he becomes one of the 12 disciples, the, the, the pillars of the first century church that we are recipients of. And I know if you can do that to Matthew and for Matthew. You can do it for us. And Lord, I believe there are people watching or in the room that need to hear that follow me And Lord, there are plenty of people that are on the other side of the cross that may be living in one of these other four disses. And I pray today that you would infuse them. Lord, you would redeem that. Lord, you would recalibrate and refocus in the name of Jesus as they surrender this situation to you, that you would do this in their life. And for all of us, Lord, if we don't respond to either of those two, I pray that you drop, you do some name dropping right now, that you would drop a name um, of someone that, we, that you really have purpose to be in our life and we need, to get, we need to get more engaged with them on your behalf. Would you do all of that for us now, Lord, in this moment? We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.